Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Our guest today is Rob Syke. Preston, for those who maybe don't know who Rob is, tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, Rob's a neat guy. He's an outspoken advocate for the agriculture industry, and we had a the great honor to speak with him here today. He has quite the resume. Rob's an outspoken champion of agriculture. He's a distinguished agrologist, professional agricultural consultant. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's been involved with a lot of startup companies and has been hailed as an agricultural futurist with unparalleled insight into where the ag industry is headed. He has leveraged these strengths to found over 15 companies in the areas of farming, uh, media and ag tech, including the AgriTrend AgriData group of companies, which was recently acquired by Trimble. And most recently, he's the CEO of AgVisor Pro. And throughout the course of the interview, Rob talks a little bit about some of the things he's been involved with. So the listeners will be interested to hear a little bit more about some of those things. We specifically wanted to talk to him about his book, Ag 5.0, How We Feed the Future. In his book, he talks about the iterations of ag from 1.0 through 5.0, 1.0 being the very beginning of ag when everything was done manually through the current time. It's kind of divided into two halves, and so we also split this interview up into two halves, so we're going to have two episodes. The first one where we'll talk about the first four eras of agriculture, and then an entire episode where we talk about the future. Perfect. Yeah. Like I said, Rob's an interesting guy. I think we had a great discussion with him. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Well, Rob, welcome to the podcast. To kick things off, let's start out. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and career? Thanks uh, for having me on the podcast, guys. Uh, well, I'm Canadian and grew up in the northeastern corner of Alberta on a mixed farming operation. I started farming when I was 14 years old, and that began a career. I was infected with the virus called agriculture <laughs> early on in my life. Uh, graduated from the University of Alberta, worked with the Eli Lilly or Lanco company for a while. Uh, began working at retail fertilizer businesses, uh, built some uh, liquid acid fertilizer plants in Canada, worked with the Stoller Group on uh, micronutrients, worked with Tiger internationally on sulfur, um, in my 20s and 30s, built uh, a couple of retail fertilizer companies, uh, ag agri-retail companies, um, farmed, uh, had feeder cattle, um, built, a, uh, uh, built a company called AgriTrend and AgriData for uh, 20 years, uh, was one of North America's largest consulting firms and, uh, and data platforms, was acquired by Trimble. Uh, that is Trimble Ag Software right now is AgriData, which is our, our platform. Um, uh, then I uh, spent some time uh, working in the robotics industry, most recently completed a stint as CEO and uh, was involved in the acquisition of uh, DOT autonomous uh, robotic technology by Raven Industries, uh, founded a company called AgVisor Pro, uh, which we'll talk about, AgVisor Pro I founded uh, last year, which is remote access and connectivity between farmers and experts in real time. Uh, AgVisor Pro is perfect for a COVID environment. Um, I've been involved in uh, advocating for agriculture, especially for genetic engineering or GMOs. Uh, I've done TED Talks, uh, um, formed, formed a company called No Ideas Media, K-N-O-W, and I've 
written two books, uh, The Agriculture Manifesto, uh, 10 Key Drivers That Will Shape Ag in the Next Decade, and most recently, Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future. So there's a quick encapsulation. I probably missed some stuff, but that gives you an idea. That's an impressive resume that you have. Reading your book and reading the intro to your book, it's clear that you've been involved in agriculture in many different facets for a long time, and you've been all over the world. I'm just kind of curious. You've seen agriculture all over the world, and you're from Canada, and you spent a lot of time in the U.S. How does farming in the U.S. compare to that in Canada and maybe in other parts of the world? Just kind of real briefly. Well, um, in Canada, one of the things that we deal with is an extremely tight growing season. So people often say that a lot of the inventions coming out of Canada are because of we, we think outside of the box here. And I disagree with that. I think the box is really, really small. We've got to slam our crop in the ground in 30 days. Uh, this year, uh, it's April right now, and we still have 4 million acres of crop that's under snow that has to be taken off before we can start seeding this year. And we got to grow that crop in 110 days, and then we've got to harvest it before the snow hits again. So our, our uh, restrictions on farming in Canada are really, really tight. I think it's one of the most restricted areas of the world, and that generates a lot of, uh, a lot of innovation in Canada. Uh, in the United States, of course, you've got a lot of different growing regions in the United States, everything from California down to Texas and across the Midwest. And, you know, the Midwest uh, is, uh, you guys are both, uh, you know, talking to me from Illinois right now. That's corn, soybean country. And there's a reason that farmers grow corn, soybean in your area. And that's because they can do it. And they do it very, very well. However, with uh, uh, better genetics and some shifting in growing regions, we're seeing corn and soybeans come up into Canada. I think one of the big differentiators uh, between Canadian and maybe U.S. agriculture is our crop rotation. We have a, a lot more crops in our rotation. We have canola, barley, wheat, oats, flax, uh, corn, soybeans, so a lot more uh, crops. It's not uncommon for my farmers, and I, I run a peer group for 20 farmers right now, and it's not uncommon for us to have five to seven crops in the rotation. That's, that's not uncommon. Um, wow. I think by and large, uh, you know, uh, farmers in Canada and the U.S. are facing the same problem. We're a small minority of the population. I know we'll discuss that. We do not have strong voices and, uh, and often um, we're misunderstood. People really don't understand what's going on. I think that's a real big similarity between Canada and the United States. It's a you know interesting that you bring up being a minority and trying to get the message out there and farmers need to do that and can take all the advocacy that they can get. And so that kind of brings us to something that you mentioned and, and the topic of this podcast is your book, Food 5.0, How Do We Feed the Future? Tell us a little bit about how you decided to write this book and kind of your reasoning behind that. Well, I have, uh, I have four children um, and I have... Uh, six soon to be seven grandchildren and by and large except for my son my kids are disconnected from agriculture and they are as influenced by social media today as anybody is and so when i look at my family my immediate family my my children and i and i watch and i and i listen to how distorted some of their views are with respect to agriculture it really upsets me um, i know i i lost my temper one day with uh, my second eldest daughter who said she wasn't going to let my granddaughters drink milk because milk is pumped full of pro or pumped full of hormones. 
And uh, we all know that there are hormones in milk, but they're naturally occurring from the cows. And if you add hormones in Canada to, uh, to milk production, it's illegal. So uh, it's, it's pure paranoia driven by social media panic. And um, so I, I wrote the book basically so that we could have a voice of uh, what I call farmers of consequence and, and broad acre agricultural farmers uh, to speak into the uh, rural population. In other words, farming is complex business. It's, it, is, it is a very complex uh, industry, agriculture is. And uh, you know, people try to come up with simplistic solutions or simplistic terminology, and most of it's crap. And it scares the population, it scares people. And I'm tired of, of, of moms being scared to feed food to their kids because somehow they think that we're trying as farmers to poison the planet. It, it doesn't make any sense. And most of it just comes from, you know, from ignorance. And so I wrote the book, Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, to, to fly in the face of a lot of the books that are on the shelves of bookstores today that really peddle fear. Uh, and I wanted to provide clarity and uh, a hands, uh, 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 you know, to, to throw off the gloves, to use a hockey term, to throw off the gloves and, and just to, uh, to get right in it and, and share the facts about what's going on in, in modern farming today with the audience. And, and the response to the book has been incredible, incredible. I, I, it's a great read. I mean, it's an easy read, and I really think it should be required reading for a lot of people just to kind of learn the story of agriculture. Yeah, I was really excited when a teacher from Minnesota just reached out to me, and during the COVID isolation, she has made Food 5.0 a required reading for her students so they could discuss it in their curriculum, which I was just totally blown away with. That was really exciting. That's awesome. Um, so Rob, let's start at the beginning. Your first section, the first section of your book describes the origins of agriculture. Can you describe agriculture 1.0? And then secondly, what do you say to people who romanticize this uh, period of time in agriculture? Well, the book is divided. Food 5.0 really takes you through five iterations of agriculture, the muscle era, the machine era, the chemistry era, and now convergence. And so the first part of the book uh, that we'll talk about really is the first four iterations of agriculture, beginning with the muscle era. And if you think about it, you know, as man moved from hunter-gatherer and we began to domesticate crops and livestock, uh, agriculture as we know it today, that was the genesis. And uh, that early agriculture that really lasted for over 10,000 years was, uh, was an agriculture built on muscle whether it was man or woman or children or oxen or horse, but largely it was draft. We were pulling um, plows or we were working the fields with muscle and uh, that lasted forever. And uh, it also ensured that most of the population was in agriculture, not because they had a choice, but because they had to, they had to feed each other, uh, feed, feed their, their families. And so, Everybody was in agriculture, uh, except for, uh, you know, the upper crust of nobility. Everybody else was involved in food production, and it was drudgery, and it was hard work. And, um, and you know, and, and that persisted right until the 1800s. Uh, we were in the era of muscle, and I, I'm very amused 
when I, when I hear on social media about urbanites saying that we should become one with the land again, we should become one with the soil and work the soil with our hands. Well, I know that they've never hoed a half acre of potatoes or harvested a, a crop by hand because it's damn hard work. And I am so thankful that we have migrated out of the era of muscle in agriculture because it's freed up our children from slavery to the land and our children can become lawyers and doctors and teachers and nurses and baseball players and astronauts instead of raising food. Preston's a little bit younger than I am in full disclosure here, but uh, I spent a lot of time walking <laughs> beans in the pre-roundup days. So, um, you know, we're going to get into the chemistry and genetic engineering iterations later. But uh, I know all about that manual labor, and um, it isn't really all that romantic. <laughs> no, I mean, if you've ever rogued fields, which is what you're talking about, and you rogued those weeds by hand, that is a long day. And, you know, right now in the middle of the COVID crisis that we're in right now, one of the real shortages is labor at farm level, especially for uh, vegetable crops and fruit crops right now. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of unemployed people staying at home, but I guarantee you most of the people that are urbanites would never last half a day in the field working uh, as those uh, crop laborers work right now. So, Rob, you maybe have some hard numbers on this, but if you don't, what would you estimate as a percentage of the population was involved in farming in Agriculture 1.0? Well, in the muscle era, um, you know, in 18, uh, 1820, um, I did look this up for you guys, that 72% uh, of America was involved in agriculture. That was actively farming and growing food. By, by 1850, the number had dropped down to 64%. But you're still talking two-thirds of the population in the 1800s, at least two-thirds of the population was living on farms, mostly small farms and mostly subsistence agriculture. Uh, as we got mechanization, we'll get into the year of machines, but uh, that dropped it down in 1920 to 30%. So we were at 70, 60, 70% of the population in the 1800s was involved in farming and actually being on the farm. And everybody was a farmer. Everybody understood farming and everybody um, had a pair of overalls and gloves and whatever, uh, if they had gloves and was in the field because we had to be. So in the book you go into then, you mentioned the machine era, Ag 2.0. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, Agriculture 2.0, the machine era, is uh, really coincides with the industrial age when the steam engine was invented um, largely to facilitate coal mining uh, then locomotives were invented and then uh, industrial people figured out how to bring that steam power onto farms. That steam power, those early uh, steam powered tractors uh, lent themselves to um, mechanization of operations such as plowing or tilling the land and ultimately uh, harvest equipment. So in the early days, the threshing machine was a stationary harvesting piece of equipment where you would drive up to and uh, you would throw in your stooks and then the threshing machine would thresh the grain, separating the grain from the straw. Well, that threshing machine was powered by a pulley and uh, that pulley from the tractor was attached to a belt that, that powered the threshing machine. So it was really the stationary, um, the stationary threshing machine powered by the, um, uh, the steam engine uh, tractor 
uh, via a flywheel that began the mechanization of harvest. Of course, later on, what happened is uh, they started to take the operations of cutting the crop and binding the stooks and then um, ingesting the stooks and separating the grain into grain and straw and uh, made that into one piece of equipment. And that is why the combine is called the combine because it combined uh, several different operations at once, such as cutting, binding, uh, ingesting, uh, threshing, and separate, separating and, and, and that sort of thing. So that's, that's where the terminology, the combine came from. And we're still today in the era of agriculture 2.0. We still are uh, involved with um, mechanization and equipment on farming technology. Of course, this gave uh, birth to uh, the major corporations in agriculture, such as uh, John Deere and, and Case IH, uh, that's owned by Fiat now, and, and you've got uh, the Kloss Company and Agco and all of the agricultural McCormicks and Massey Ferguson's and Minneapolis Moline and all of those companies uh, came out of uh, the mechanization era or, or you know, a machine era of, uh, of agriculture 2.0. It's interesting. And as we talk about these iterations, I mean, I think as you've kind of alluded to here, 1.0 is not necessarily completely gone, right? We still do some things based on muscle and we still will continue to use machines as they can, even though the machines will continue to evolve. I like to go to some uh, antique tractor shows and things like that and see some of the old equipment working. And it's really interesting to see how far we've come. But we haven't, you know, I, I guess we'll talk about the future later on, but do you, you don't really see us leaving the machine era completely, do you? No, I think that when we get into agriculture 5.0, which is convergence, we're going to understand that uh, the convergence of technology today is largely going to be converging into and with uh, farm equipment. So we're going to see the technology impacting farm equipment. We see that today. I mean, if you sit in a modern tractor or combine, uh, the, the number of monitors or computing systems inside of that uh, piece of equipment uh, would, would, would be just like a, a modern aircraft. Uh, uh, your airplanes have all of these sensors and computers and GPS guidance, and so do our tractors today. So we've been seeing and witnessing this convergence of technology into equipment, and we'll be in the, you know, as long as we have agriculture, we're going to require horsepower to do, you know, to do the work uh, that otherwise would be done by people. And to my point, that's why by 1920, uh, only 30% of the population was on the farm, because uh, the farm had begun to begun to industrialize and and it was largely because of mechanization that we were able to free people off the land and allow them to move to cities and and take up other occupation yeah it's interesting that you mentioned the amount of monitors and equipment in the tractor cab sometimes it strikes me when i'm in a tractor that there's probably as much as many monitors and as many things to um, keep track of in there as there probably was in the space shuttle when it was invented. And the amount oh. of computing power in a tractor dwarfs that of what was in the space shuttle and probably the navigational equipment also. Yeah, no question about that. And again, for, you know, people who are urban people or aren't connected to farming operations, if someday you stopped a farmer and asked him, uh, you know, how come those lines are so straight in the field? Well, that's because they don't steer anymore. Uh, nobody steers their tractors anymore. 
that's all uh, auto steer, uh, uh, GPS, uh, uh, swath guidance. I mean, that's, uh, that's amazing. And, you know, um, you now it's, it's an anomaly where you see a field that has crooked rows because most farmers today are completely autonomous when it comes to steering. Absolutely. Well, let's keep marching uh, forward through time. So Ag 3.0 is the chemistry era, which is next. Uh, can you describe this era? Well, the chemistry era was absolutely necessary for the evolution of agriculture. It, it was in step with what was going on um, since the dawn of agriculture. If you go way, way back, uh, chrysanthemums were crushed to uh, extract uh, um, pyrethrum, pyrethrum, and pyrethrum is an organic insecticide like pyrethroid, the synthetic cousin, and uh, then elemental sulfur was used by the Romans and, and then Bordeaux mixture, which is uh, lime and uh, copper sulfate, was used by the French uh, for eons. Uh, and that was sprayed on the grape crops on the way to Paris to prevent the people from eating the grapes. And it turned out that Bordeaux mixture also kept aside botrytis in the crops. So we've been using chemistry in agriculture for a long, long time. However, it really got kicked into gear in World War II with the Haber-Bosch process. I argue that Haber-Bosch Haber -Bosch is likely the most important invention in human history because um, it's the uh, conversion of inert uh, nitrogen. So with every breath you take, in 78% inert nitrogen with every breath you take. That nitrogen doesn't help to grow crops. It's got to be fixed. And through temperature and pressure, Haber-Bosch was able to take inert nitrogen and fix it into uh, fertilizer. And today it's estimated that 50% of, of the protein in every man, woman, and child on the planet Earth owes itself that protein comes from fertilizer. So fertilizer was really, really important. And we needed to find a new source of fertilizer because uh, guano was running out. You remember that the guano wars uh, between Bolivia and Peru were being fought over the mountains of guano, uh, bird poop on the islands just off of the coast uh, of, uh, of Peru and Chile. And, and uh, they were extracting that guano and shipping that to North America and Europe, and that supply was running out. So without having uh, an alternate synthetic source of nitrogen, we were doomed. Agriculture was doomed and humanity was doomed because you simply can't get enough food production out of organic agriculture production without an external source of nitrogen. So that really began the chemistry era, um, along with, of course, the uh, advent of uh, crop protection products such as 2,4-D. So 2,4-D is a broad, um, um, uh, a broad leaf control of, uh, of weeds in a crop. And then we had a plethora of new chemistries come on the marketplace in the 60s and 70s, everything from atrazine and trifluralin and triolate. And these were largely soil applied uh, herbicides. And then you had all sorts of uh, foliar applied herbicides come on the marketplace and then uh, the development of, of more and more insecticides to control boll weevil and cotton and and uh, Colorado potato beetle in potato production and and then fungicides came along to help us to control 
the diseases in our crops that we have. And over time, crop production just kept increasing and increasing. Um, and that was uh, a benefit because we were able to keep uh, many of the uh, biotic uh, forces at bay. Now, Mother Nature is a fierce competitor. She has no interest in a farmer harvesting a crop. Mother Nature wants to ravage that crop. And so it's up to farmers to protect that crop. And that's really where the age of chemistry came in, which is the ability for us to do everything from seed treatments all the way through to protecting the crop through harvest. Without that, um, you know, uh, crop yield on the globe would, would instantaneously drop back by about 42% on the planet if we didn't have these, uh, these chemistries, these crop protection products. Wow, 42%. Yeah, if, if you took away all the pesticide on the planet today and just took it away from farmers overnight, uh, crop production would drop about 42%. That's incredible. And you mentioned a couple of other things that I want to bring up later. Uh, one being you talked about the nitrogen in the atmosphere. And I want to table a question that I have about that for a little bit later in the conversation. But getting back to the chemistry, sometimes we see claims from activists or social media or whatever that soil is dead, that we've killed the soil with the chemistries that we're putting on the soil. In fact, I think Preston uh, tweeted out something about Roundup last year, and you know it was like a drone picture of the field, and someone responded and said, you can clearly see that that soil is dead. Uh, what do you say to those claims? Well, first of all, Roundup is a herbicide, uh, and uh, you know uh, the, the, there's no product's been studied more in agriculture than Roundup, and it's... Uh, um, it, the claims that Roundup is uh, making your soil dead are unfounded, and there's lots of science to back that up. Uh, however, uh, you know, the degree to which our soil is healthy or not healthy is really dependent on a few factors that I talk about in the book, which is we need agriculture to be infinitely sustainable. That infinite sustainability of agriculture depends really on, on soil health, water use efficiency, a greenhouse gas balance and viability of the farmer. So with farmers passing their land generation to generation, why would a farmer want to destroy his soil for his children and his grandchildren? What would be the rationale between a farmer wanting to destroy his soil? It makes zero sense. Now with that all being said, some practices we could do a better job of. Um, you know, where, 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 we have, uh, uh, where we have put on nitrogen uh, without soil testing, where we have put on nitrogen without uh, splitting the nitrogen applications, where we have put on nitrogen without uh, using slow release compounds, you can get damage to the environment. And no better example of that than India. In India, the policy has been to subsidize nitrogen fertilizers to the point where the Indian farmer has put on so much nitrogen fertilizer that the fertilizer has started to acidify the soil. But that by and large is not how farmers operate. For one thing, uh, these inputs, be it uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, or any of the inputs that we put on are expensive. So tell me why a farmer would wanna put on these things to the point of severe losses. And I'm not saying that there aren't some losses in the system because inherently there are. Uh, our job as agronomists or agricultural scientists are to work with farmers to minimize these losses 
to ensure that soils are healthier. And in my book, I have a quote that is dedicated to farmers. And the quote is um, that at the end of his life on this earth, the most valuable thing a farmer can leave on this earth is more earth. And the key there is that if we are doing the proper job agronomically, if we're not over tilling the soil, then we should be able to make that soil healthier. And people who make those claims that the soil is dead or, or we're killing our soil then need to spend a little bit of time with modern agronomists who are working with farmers to ensure that soil is healthier. Now, again, I'm going to qualify all this by saying it is not a perfect system and there are a lot of, uh, uh, lots of room for improvement. And even, you know, people are thinking organic farming is the panacea, but one of the ways to control weeds in organic farming is through tillage. And every time you till the land, you uh, fracture the soil, you break down the organic matter, you reduce the texture of the soil, you reduce the water holding capacity, you increase blow off of carbon gases from the soil. So tillage is not necessarily an answer. In fact, it degrades soil to a large extent. So if you're relying on weed control to till soils and you're massively tilling soil and you're tilling the soil three or four or seven times through the growing season, what's worse for the environment? that seven tilling of soil or a, uh, you know, a, a soda can of uh, Roundup on a football field, because that's what it is. Uh, again, I wanted to say, and I talk about this in the book, that when people see a sprayer going across the land and all of that fluid coming out of the back end of the sprayer, you realize that it's water, right? You understand that it's water. Anywhere between five to 20 gallons per acre of water is being used as a carrier to carry a soda can worth of product to spread it evenly over a football field. I think that farmers should put a sign up on side of the road saying it's water and uh, let people go home and think about that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, anybody who claims that farmers are not doing everything they can to be sustainable hasn't talked to too many farmers because really, as far as I know, the goal of most farmers is to make a living and then to pass on their operation to their children if they have them. Yeah, uh, I know in the book I talk about uh, the fact that, uh, would you agree that a business that's been a hundred years in business is a sustainable business? And most people would have to agree that a hundred year old company would be quite something. Well, there's lots of farmers that are 100, 150 year old farmers, uh, not 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 year old farmers, but the farms are 100 to 150 <laughs> right. years old, been passed on to four and five generations. And so before people start mouthing off on social media about the insustainability of agriculture, you know, when they have a business that's 100 years old, then I'll give them the microphone and they can talk to us about sustainability. But until then, they should shut up and talk to some farmers about sustainability. So this has uh, been a fascinating discussion so far and I want to move to the next iteration of agriculture that you talk about in your book, and that's 4.0. You know, we're probably talking about the 1990s to the present day. Uh, Roundup Ready crops were launched in the mid-90s, and that was really the first big adoption of genetically engineered crops. Right. Um, agriculture 4.0, which I call genetic engineering um, or biotechnology, the beginning of the biotechnology age, 
uh, really started to take effect with the first generation of herbicide tolerant crops. And uh, really, when we talk about genetic engineering, I'll throw out the terminology uh, GMO, which is genetically modified organism. Genetically modified organisms are not uh, something that have ingredients in them. It's a really poor vernacular uh, for uh, genetic engineering. Since the time of Mendel, when Mendel was working on, on crossing uh, pea crops and observing that genetics can move from one plant to another, man has continually, since the dawn of agriculture, been selecting crops for genetic, uh, genetic traits, suitability. How do we make the crops better? And so over time, we've had these open pollination or, or, or free crossing between plants. And then hybridization came along to, to generate hybrid vigor. Think, uh, uh, think a horse uh, crossed with a donkey generating a mule. And a mule is a, is a hybrid vigor crop or animal, and that hybrid vigor is very strong in corn crops, for example. And then we have mutagenesis, and then we have polypoloid, and we have all of these breeding technologies that have advanced over time. And with the advent of computing power and with the advent of database and data mining, we moved into the era of genetic engineering, the ability to manipulate the ATCs and Gs. So biotechnology is really uh, computer programming. And instead of binary code, ones and zeros, we're using ATCs and Gs to try to get the traits we're looking for in the crops. And so with farming, again, we don't wanna till the land. We don't wanna spray on herbicide if we don't need to. We're looking for more and more efficient ways and uh, you, you brought up the example of herbicide-tolerant crops, Roundup being one of the first ones, where breeders were able to take some genetics that showed resistance to Roundup and uh, take that genetics and put it into uh, corn and soybeans and canola. And by, lo, lo and behold, we had a new crop where you could spray Roundup on the crop and effectively clean out the weeds, but no damage to the crop. So Rob, you mentioned mutagenesis, and we had a recent series on the podcast where we talked to some plant breeders and kind of the history of plant breeding. And one of the things we talked about was mutagenesis. And this is, it's very interesting that mutagenic derived crops are accepted in organic agriculture where, you know, mutagenesis for those who don't know is exposing a, a crop to some radiation or some other mutagen and then selecting plants, you know, based on the mutations that occurred. Red grapefruits are an example of this that were derived from this. But this is an accepted process for organic production where you have wide scale changes in the genome potentially that we don't know, don't understand and can't track. Now, when we're talking about genetic engineering, we're talking about a very targeted process where you specifically change or introduce a specific gene or, you know, very few amount of genes into the genome. What are your thoughts on that? I, I've always thought it's a little odd that organic production doesn't accept genetic engineering, but does accept mutagenesis. It seems to me that having a crop produce its own pesticide, you know, in the case of, say, Bt corn, we're talking about a protein 
from a organic pesticide, a bacteria that lives in the soil that has been used in organic production for 50, 60, 70 years. Yet when you make the plant express a single protein from that bacteria, suddenly um, it's not accepted. So what do you think about the convergence of genetic engineering and organic food production? Well, I, I talk about it in my book. I believe the, the future of farming is GMO. I think the future of farming should be genetically modified organic farming, GMO, genetically modified organic farming. And the reason I say that is because there's not a farmer listening to this podcast today that wants to spend more money on fertilizer. There's not a farmer listening to this podcast today that wants to spend more money on pesticides. And the way I look at it, the only technology that could allow us to reduce the dependency on synthetic fertilizers and pesticides is genetic engineering. So effectively, GMO technology allows us to farm more organically. So the question is, why did the organic industry, uh, why, why is the organic industry not recognizing genetic engineering, but, but hypocritically is recognizing mutagenic uh, breeding technology, which scrambles chromosomes in an unregulated fashion, and that is done in a laboratory by subjecting the seeds to carcinogenic chemicals or nuclear radiation, gamma rays. Why is that accepted by the organic industry, and yet the precise uh, flicking off of three genes to silence them in an apple is rejected by the organic industry? It's hypocrisy, and there's only one reason for doing it, and that is marketing. Now, if we could park, if we could park the rhetoric to the side, and we could just say to the organic industry, could we accept genetic engineering? It would allow the whole industry, all of farming, to move more to organic production because we would be able to utilize genetic engineering to fight pests, to produce uh, crops that would be more resistant to saline conditions or more resistant to drought. It would allow us to extract nutrients better out of the soil. It would effectively allow us to farm all farming more organically. So I think the future of agriculture should be genetically modified organic farming. Now, the reason that it's not is because the organic industry has a, has a, has a, a real uh, a reason to, to vilify uh, GMOs or genetic engineering and it comes back down to marketing to the consumer and that's why I wrote the book. I am tired of consumers being fed a bunch of crap with adjectives and labels on, uh, on packages when I see a non-GMO butterfly sticker on Himalayan rock salt which is inert, it's a salt <laughs> in the, from the Himalayan mountains or, or a non-GMO sticker on on Catelli pasta or a non-GMO sticker on Hunt's tomato or a non-GMO sticker on Simply Orange, it's, it's all bull crap because there is no genetically engineered oranges yet, although we need them because if we don't get a genetically engineered solution, then um, the orange industry is on its knees due to, due to the uh, citrus greening. So it's all marketing. It's all marketing, all positioning, all posturing. It's all designed to produce panic uh, in the minds of the consumer. And how can you tell me that the, randoming, the random scrambling of the chromosomal complex in a laboratory with nuclear radiation is somehow better for the consumer? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. 
I'm just saying that it's preposterous to say that's okay and precise genetic uh, engineering is somehow bad. It's, it's marketing. It's all it is. I think we both agree 100% with you on that, uh, Rob. Before we get into Convergence Ag 5.0, uh, out of curiosity, do you have any stats regarding the current percentage of the population that's involved in farming today? Well, I, actually, I, I start the book out by by doing some some you know math, uh, really quick math on it. Uh, you know, there's 370 million people in Canada and the United States, and they say whoever they is that two percent of that population is farming. Well, that's simply not true. That, that'd be 7.4 million people uh, farming. Well, there might be a lot of people farming, but a lot of this is uh, not viable farming. And what I mean by that is it's not commercially viable. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not detracting from people having small holdings of land and farming. I think that's fine. It's just that they're not farmers of consequence. And farmers of consequence to me are farmers who are actually making their living by farming. And these farmers of consequence uh, are producing 80 plus percent of the food that we consume today. And those farmers of consequence are not 2% of the North American population, but I would argue are probably 0.2% of the North American population and maybe less. You could fit most of the farmers of consequence in America into your largest football field. Uh, in, in the United States. And in Canada, a majority of our farmers wow. of consequence would fit into the largest hockey rink we have up here in Canada. So that is, that is the reason that these people don't have a voice and are not understood. I mean, if you use the word farm and ask a city person, what does that mean? They conjure up Im images of red barns and farmers with bib overalls and round fendered pickup trucks and straw hats and straw hanging out of your mouth. And that ain't farming today. That's not, that's not modern farming by a long shot. And the reason is, is that farmers of consequence are not understood by, by urbanites because uh, the urbanites now have been removed from the farm three or four generations. The only image they have of farming is a grandpa's farm or the great grandpa's farm. And, and that ain't farming today. So Rob, we're coming up on time here that we had slotted for this episode. And we'd like to talk a little bit about Ag 5.0. We're actually going to save that for another day. But can you tell us a little bit, just briefly, what Ag 5.0 is in the book? Yeah, the Agriculture 5.0 is really the second part of the book, and it's about convergence. And as uh, the listeners are, uh, are getting ready for the, uh, you know, the second part of this podcast series, I want them to look at their smartphone. and that really is the example that I want to use because the smartphone is convergence. It converges things like a daytimer and a Rolodex. Those are old terms uh, together with a cassette recorder and a, and a, uh, a camera and a GPS receiver and a, and all sorts of devices and temperature monitors are all converged inside of your smartphone. And agriculture is going through the same thing. All of these technologies are converging on the farm and changing the face of agriculture like never before. So as we get ready for agriculture 5.0, we're gonna talk about how the era of muscle, the era of machine, the era of chemistry, the era of biotechnology is being all integrated in new technology that's converging and changing the shape of farming uh, today. 
Hopefully all of our listeners know what those uh, technologies you referenced are. <laughs> we might have some younger listeners. Yeah, that's true. Well, Rob, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, your time for this first podcast interview. Uh, we look forward to having you on for the second iteration coming up here in a couple of weeks. I'm glad to be with you guys and looking forward to the next episode. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.